es un asunto en el que la sociedad civil siempre ha jugado un papel fundamental. La sociedad civil. Civil society. The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. Welcome back to The Grassroots View. This coming year marks the 20th anniversary of the EU's biggest ever enlargement, when 10 countries in Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean joined the Union. We're now at 27 member states, but there's no shortage of countries that want to join, especially in the Western Balkans. Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Montenegro, North Macedonia and Serbia are already official candidates. But much is expected of these countries in terms of their adoption of EU laws and standards. And in the EU itself, many governments are lukewarm when it comes to extending the Union's geography. The EESC is a leading voice for consistency, engagement and optimism in this relationship at all levels, and especially the grassroots. So to tie in with this month's EU-Western Balkans Summit, our podcast examines some of the issues around this EU policy and the EESC's work within it. Joining me on this episode are the committee's president, Oliver Rupka, journalist and foreign policy analyst, Alexandra Vuduri, Balkans civil society expert, Biljana Spasovska, and Danuta Hübner a member of the European Parliament representing Poland, a former Polish Minister for European Affairs and a former European Commissioner for Regional Policy. First to you, Professor Hübner. Before we get on to the EESC, how do you see the role of the European Parliament in the enlargement process for the Western Balkans? What is important is that the European Parliament has been always very open to enlargements, and this is what we continue to be. So we are a supporter of the enlargement, and we are working with the candidate countries very closely. I think we have to remember that enlargement is is not just only political will. It is also European interest. The bigger we are, the bigger the space of democracy. So I think it's always important to see that there are two parties to this process. Both have to be prepared, but clearly both benefit. And also, I think the world benefits. You also have the perspective, as I said, of a former minister in Poland and a former member of the European Commission. So how is the EESC's role different from that of the European Parliament? I think the fact that the European Economic and Social Committee is having different membership than European Parliament. You are coming um, directly from the ground. You are locally present and you also have this attitude to the potential new member states that you have the links with uh, with the civil society, which I think absolutely fundamental, but also with the workers and also with the employers. So all those people who are very, very important in the whole process of enlargement. What are your thoughts on so-called enlargement fatigue, especially as an MEP representing a member state that joined in the most significant enlargement back in 2004? First of all, I don't like this notion of uh, fatigue with enlargement, enlargement fatigue. I think we have no right to have the enlargement uh, fatigue. If we make mistake and the process is too long, uh, then it's true that people just uh, lose the, the hope, uh, lose the faith in the future uh, of uh, the accession. So we must avoid anything that would make the enlargement an open-ended process without clear dates, without clear commitments on both 
sites and uh, enlargement um, to the Western Balkans is an example of uh, the mistakes that uh, can be made in this uh, process. Are there alternative models to EU membership worth considering that allow for greater integration while meeting the concerns of some EU member states about the readiness of some of these countries to join? Enlargement is very clearly defined in the treaty. Uh, it is a fully-fledged membership with, of course, with all the uh, transition periods, derogations, because not everything can be done overnight. And uh, also Poland had a lot of transition uh, periods. We continue not to benefit fully from the agricultural policy, for example. So yes, it, it is uh, uh, clear what is enlargement. But of course, I am in favor actually of uh, bringing new member states to certain aspects of the integration earlier if we are still continuing uh, negotiations, but we are really prepared uh, as an uh, acceding country, we are prepared to benefit from some aspects of single market. We should just be invited to benefit. But uh, let's agree that we should aim at enlargement as a fully fledged um, membership in the European Union. Is the EU able to compete and be sufficiently attractive to the region, considering that other geopolitical actors are seeking greater influence there? The EU has no other option. We have to be um, attractive. The world today is clearly polarised and not everybody is just enjoying the values that European Union stands uh, for. Uh, there is a lot of dictators, authoritarian regimes, and they are very active with the investment in the Western Balkans as well. We you know it's not a secret, the role of Russia, uh, the role of China. We, we have had Turkey for uh, quite a, a time. So if we delay the whole process, then we leave the space for, uh, for them, discouraging people also to be committed to membership in the European Union. That's why I'm saying that we cannot afford it and we should just uh, be as fast as possible with the process of Western uh, Balkans now with bringing them to the European Union. Thanks, Dana Tehobner, MEP, for your contribution to the Grassroots View. Now, for a perspective from a country at the southern end of the Balkan region, Greece. And I'm joined now by Alexandra Vuduri, a correspondent for Greek daily newspaper Katimarini and a foreign policy analyst. Alexandra, welcome to the programme. First, given that guaranteeing press freedom is a significant step to EU membership, do you think your counterparts in the Western Balkans are able to hold their governments to account? We can find exceptional uh, paradigms of journalistic excellence, uh, collaborations, honestly, journalistic work of high quality. In some countries, fact-checking services are operating even better than in EU member states. Uh, in Kosovo, for example, there is a special TV program that actually holds the government to account on what it has promised and what it delivers actually to the citizens. We see in Albania, for instance, uh, opposition voices in the media criticizing some moves of the Albanian government, especially in regards to uh, efforts vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the country's European integration. So I guess, and in contrast with the reality in uh, many member states, the media in the Balkan countries are criticizing the governments. How do you assess the mood among citizens in these countries? In many of them, there's a substantial majority in favour of EU accession. 
Well, unfortunately, citizens of the Western Balkan region are highly uh, skeptical at the moment. They are skeptical that their countries won't be joining the EU anytime soon. Citizens of the region had grown uh, tired of promises and expectations. Uh, most Western Balkan countries have been waiting in line even for decades and are uh, keen to finally uh, see some progress. It is true that uh, Russia's war in Ukraine gave a new momentum to the European Union's enlargement and revive the membership beats of most countries from the Western Balkans. But still, even now, uh, not much should be expected, especially from the EU-Western Balkan summit. So the key EU institutions for enlargement, the Council and the Commission, are perhaps just as much to blame as the governments in the region. Is that how you see it? They're not giving anything to the countries of the region apart from the necessary messages, but the EU doesn't deliver. We know that, of course, there is fatigue on behalf of some governments in Western Balkan region regarding the necessary reforms, but the membership bits are stuck due to other political reasons. We know very well that Bulgaria is blocking the way of North Macedonia's accession path, and recently... Greece is also blocking Albania's accession path. So I expect further frustration on behalf of the citizens of the Western Balkans. And um, that cannot be good news, especially at this pivotal moment for both the EU and the Western Balkan region. Let's talk for a moment about the strength of civil society in the region and your thoughts on how the EESC could make a difference. First and foremost, I think that uh, civil society in the Western Balkans is really active, amazingly active, even in countries with political problems like Serbia. We've seen there the movements of citizens demanding things from the government, even though we know very well the political uh, situation and in general. The civil society in Western Balkans is very active and pro-European. So the initiative on behalf of the EESC to engage more uh, with civil society has been a great one. And in fact, I read very recently that uh, EESC has opened the door uh, to the EU candidate countries by appointing enlargement candidate members, a unique move. And I think the cooperation of the committee itself with the civil society is very crucial. I think it's a key, uh, to be honest, for the success of the accession negotiations. Well, indeed. And I'm glad you mentioned that because our final guest, our president, Oliver Rupke, will tell us a bit more about that. But one final thought from you, Alexandra. It's often said that countries like Russia, China and Turkey are presenting an attractive alternative to the countries of the region. What do you make of that? In reality, the European Union has a very strong uh, presence in terms of economic aid, investment, etc. in the region and of mediating in bilateral disputes. I mean, it's only the EU that is actually trying to give solutions to numerous problems among the, the countries of the region. But what is certainly needed is for the European Union to finally deliver its long overdue commitments. It doesn't help its image in the region. It certainly doesn't help the government to stick to the necessary reforms. It doesn't help the citizens to believe in a better future. If it doesn't deliver, frustration will grow and it will be a lose-lose situation for both the European Union and the West Balkans uh, region. Thanks, Alexandra Vuduri, for your journalist's grassroots view. 
The Grassroots View, an EESC podcast. I'm joined now for a grassroots view of an equally authentic kind because my next guest is Biljana Spasovska from the Balkan Civil Society Development Network. So, Biljana, tell me about your organization and its aims. So we are a regional network of civil society organizations from the wider Balkan region, protecting and expanding the civic space through evidence-based uh, and uh, collaborative policy influence on our regional, international and European level. With a vision, a common vision that the Balkan region is part of the EU and made up of uh, inclusive and functioning democracies, which ensure uh, there is environment that enables the civil society towards peace and prosperity. What interaction have you had with the EESC and how has it been? Well, it has been lovely and we're very grateful actually for the cooperation collaboration that we have. We had it in the past and it's still ongoing. We consider the committee as one of our primary partners when it comes to the EU advocacy, which is a significant part of the work of the network. They have been very good in incorporating a valuable uh, feedback from the ground. We were able to provide our feedback in their recommendations uh, provided to the Commission when it comes to both the civil society and youth enlargement policy concerning the civil society especially. So it has been a very valued partner and I hope this cooperation will continue very much so in the future. What are civil society organizations in the Balkans telling you about their views on the enlargement process? Uh, this is the current pain, I think. So for the majority of the civil society, or for those that are, are working to promote the liberal values, the enlargement process has been one of the main drivers uh, of our work. So for us, Personally, as uh, a network of civil society organizations working to strengthen our democracies, the process itself was seen both as a tool, but also as an end goal, because through the enlargement process, we were actually advocating and keeping our governments accountable uh, to strengthen democracy, to, to strengthen the role of the civil society, to be more accountable when it comes to good governance and respect for the rights. And so what can civil society do in response? Civil society is still one of the strongest supporters of the enlargement policies and one of the strongest advocates, actually, for the EU. But it's not so easy anymore. So with all the happenings, especially with how long the process has it been, how much of the process has become more and more demanding, we are told that it's a merit-based process and a technical one, that when you fulfill the compliance, when you fulfill the requirements, you eventually get to the EU. But it uh, has proved completely the opposite for many of the countries in the region, which has backfired, actually, both in terms of the civil society, but also in, in regards to our own democracies. Finally, some people say the EU isn't making its voice heard sufficiently loudly in the region when it comes to combating the influence of other geopolitical actors and their agendas. What's your view? Unfortunately, I think that's, uh, that's very much true. There has been a vacuum created with the uh, lack of progress when it comes to the accession of the region on one side and on the other side. The omnipresent rise of the anti-liberal values we see, I think this is on a global level. But in the Balkans, it comes very much visible on the interplay of different actors. For example, we see a rise in the 
anti-gender and women's rights. Then there is the issue with the environmental policy to suppress environmental activism in the region. Uh, there is the rise of the fake news and how we, we battle those. But absolutely, the absence of the, of the rule of duty has created additional pressure on the region, which was already weak enough when it comes to international influence, let us say. Thanks to Biljana Spasovska there from the Balkan Civil Society Development Network for her contribution. Now, talking of civil society, the EESC is uniquely placed as an institution to reach out to networks like Biljana's to offer support and guidance. And I'm pleased to welcome to the programme our institution's president, Oliver Rupka. Welcome. Thank you very much. Tell me first about the importance the EESC attaches to EU enlargement. Well, historically, the EESC always played an important role when it came to enlargement. We have specific bodies, so-called joint consultative committees or roundtables, which bring together actors, civil society actors, social partners and authorities from Europe and from candidate countries, where we monitor the whole enlargement procedure. So the EESC was always involved in this. But now when it comes to future enlargement rounds, I think the geopolitical context has changed dramatically. And we can see that for us, for civil society, organized civil society in Europe, enlargement will be a major challenge, but a major opportunity as well. And we think that we cannot start early enough to empower civil society and uh, social partners in candidate countries to build up strong structures, resilient structures. Is Europe hesitating on enlargement because it can't decide or because Balkan countries can't reach the standards we set? I would say both is true, actually. On the one hand side, it is true that Europe is not ready for enlargement. I think we have to reconsider and to question ourselves. And we just heard from the European Parliament that they proposed in their latest report, uh, substantial reforms to enable Europe, to make Europe fit for purpose, fit for a European Union that has 30 or even more members. But on the other hand side, it is also clear that enlargement and accession to the European Union must be merit-based. We all agree on this. And uh, as long as a candidate country does not meet the requirements, of course, uh, enlargement cannot take place. But I think we cannot leave those countries any longer in the waiting room and we don't care about them. What steps has the EESC taken to facilitate your engagement with Balkan counterparts? Yes, our initiative from the very beginning was to involve representatives from civil society, from social partners, from candidate countries in our work. Because I think who else than the EESC, the voice of organized civil society, could be the place to go ahead and to start with this procedure and to strengthen and empower civil society. So we decided to take this landmark decision and to appoint candidate members from enlargement countries by January 2024. And then we will start to involve them gradually in our advisory work. This was very much welcome by other institutions. But what is more important for me, it was very much welcome by civil society organizations, by trade unions, by employers' organizations in the candidate countries. And how does that work in practice? There will be an open call for civil society organizations and uh, social partners 
to nominate candidates for this uh, membership. And this will then be assessed here in the House in a very transparent manner. And they will be appointed by January 2024. And then we will continue. We will involve them in some selected study groups, which are of utmost importance for candidate countries. They will also attend some section meetings, some plenary meetings. So I think it, it's a very good start to involve them gradually in our work to show them also the advantages of being involved in European policy. And for us, it allows us to get a deeper insight in the situation at the ground, also regarding fundamental rights. We have the European elections coming up in six months. What concerns do you have about the impact that a politically fractured EU would have on the membership aspirations of Western Balkan countries? Well, I remain an optimist. So we are encouraging citizens to reach out and to go to vote. So we want to increase voter participation. We want to engage civil society organizations in campaigning to go to the vote, to go to the elections. And in the end, we hope very much there will be a strong signal for a strong Europe. I'm convinced if there will be a rise of populists, of extremists, of right-wing parties, this will be to the disadvantage of candidate countries, of civil society, of candidate countries, but in the end, first of all, to the disadvantage of a strong and credible Europe. Oliver Rupke, president of the EESC, we're grateful for your contribution. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And that rounds off another podcast from the EESC. Much to think about for the EU institutions and the governments of Western Balkan countries as we move towards the European elections. But one thing's for sure. The EESC has taken a decisive and irreversible step to integrate the voices of civil society and social partners in the region into the committee's work. In the meantime, compliments of the season. And join us again soon to consider things once more from the grassroots view. <laughs>